0: Amen. Let's go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for today. We thank you, Lord, for a chance to gather and to worship you. We pray, Father, that as we go through the rest of tonight, Lord, as uh, the kids are beginning this process of learning all about the play and doing all the practicing and everything, Lord, I pray you'd help them to learn much and to enjoy uh, their time tonight here, Lord, and to uh, just give their very best. Lord, for those of us that will be remaining in service, Lord, we just pray that you'd open up your word to us. Help us understand in a deeper level what you have for us, Lord. And we thank you for those that are leading the musical, Lord, that are helping as volunteers. or. Leaders of that, Lord, I pray you just uh, be with them too as they lead the kids and work with them in the coming weeks, Lord. And we thank you for it, Father. Again, thank you for tonight. May you be glorified in all that is said and done. And thank you that no matter what we go through, we can proclaim, It is well with my soul in the seasons of storm or in the seasons of blessing. We know that you remain the same, the God that's overall. And so we praise you for that, Father. We thank you for all this and we ask it in Jesus' name, Amen. All right, thank you. You may be seated, all of the children that are going to be doing the musical, you guys can go ahead and be dismissed with Miss Renee. Yep. Uh, so as these guys are dismissed, anyone that couldn't find a seat in the center section and would like to move into the center section, feel free to do so. You're not required to, but we would love to have you join us in the middle if you'd like. Um, also, uh, please make sure parents, all parents, please pick your child up from practice. Now, I don't, I don't mean they're going to leave them down there forever, but uh, there's going to be some information given to you at the end of practice. So please make sure you go down there and you pick up your child, okay? Don't just expect them to come to you, all right? So make sure you do that, all right? So for those of us that remain, we're going to be diving into the rest of our study from Judges chapter 3. Judges chapter 3. So I do have a handout for you guys. And so, um, now I I hope I, I think I have enough. So this is the same one I gave you last week. So if you were here last week, you're good. You've got the handout. If you were not here last week, then you'll need a handout. So I'm going to get a couple volunteers that maybe would. I'm I'm sorry. Did you? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Sure. And then clipboards. So clipboards and then a pen person. You guys, you can pick. John will let you pick. Barb, what do you want to hand out? Okay, there you go. Yeah. And then a pen person. I need a pen person. Anthony, great. Thanks. What? Oh. Yeah, I think so. Um Yeah. Okay. Okay, so I need one of those copies that you just got handed. I don't have any blank ones that are not written on. There you go. You don't remember the whole outline? I have, mine's written on. Mine's written on. I want that one though. <laughs> um, I don't have my keys. You have your keys. All right, so thank you guys for your patience with that. So uh, TJ is helping the children's musical. So I just realized we needed somebody to help with some of our the, the music that we play while you guys are working through the outline. So making sure we got that squared away for you. Um, while we're waiting on those copies, because I don't want to dive too much into what we've been doing without everyone having one, um, just a couple announcements to make sure we're all on the same page. Uh, just make sure you guys are aware that we have... Um, few things coming up. Men's prayer breakfast is coming up this Saturday. Ladies Day Out is coming up this Saturday. Um, Communion is uh, this coming Sunday. Um, Obviously, the youth all-nighter is coming up and also the men's chili cook-off. So we'd really love to see more and more guys sign up for that. Um, So please make sure, guys, if you are interested, sign up today uh, totally free. So there is actually... Zero reason that you can't make it. Um, And if you're a hunter, that's fine. We actually made it at a time when even those that are hunting can still come and be a part of it. So uh, come on out for that. It's going to be a great time. Who needs a handout again? So Kelsey, who else needs one? Really just for Kelsey? Oh, I'm sorry, Ashley. I didn't see that. Okay. Well, since it's for Ashley... Sure, Ashley, what can I do for you? What do you need? So you're saying we should pray for his salvation, pretty much, then? Sure. Yes. Any and all guys. Any and all men. That includes uh, children, grandchildren. Um, it's been really cool. We started opening up to more of the families and we've actually had quite a few younger people coming, uh, teenagers and even kids and grandkids coming. So yeah, any and all guys, uh, are welcome to come. Um, again, you don't even have to make a chili. That's not like required, but we obviously encourage it. Um, just cause there's If there's more options, there's more, obviously, chilies. then we have some more things to vote for. So that's always a good thing. So, um, and then we'll do Cornhole Tournament as well. I keep forgetting to mention that, but we'll have some fun with that. And there will be prizes for all of these things as well. So, all right. So those are the upcoming events, announcement things, and stuff like that. So Judges 3. So let me just really quickly tell you, uh, if you've not been with us on a Sunday night or it's been a while, um, we've been doing some different kind of textual studies on Sunday night. And we've been doing this for a little while now since, I don't know, the summer or whatnot. We did it last summer into the fall. And so what we're doing is we're taking a passage of Scripture, and I print it out. And I know you guys have a copy of God's Word, so you could read this in your own Bible, obviously. But some people don't like writing in their Bible, or there's not a lot of room to write things. So what we started doing was I just give you the text, print it out for you. You can write all over it. You can make notes and all kinds of things. And we kind of really just week by week look through a text. If we finish the text, we'll move to something else. If we don't, we'll pick it up. Now, this one we started last week, but because we do have some people that weren't with us last week, obviously, which is awesome. um, But with us tonight, I want to give you some time to work through the text. So if you were with us last week and you already did a lot of the observations, uh, bear with us, maybe even read it again, make some different observations. But if you weren't with us, what we'd like to do is give you about 10 minutes And during that time, we just want you to read through the text and you're just going to make observations, okay? What's going on in the text? Locations conversations, if there's certain people that are being talked about. um, In this passage specifically, there's things talked about as far as the name of an idol. There's talk of God feeling and and dealing in a certain way. Um, There's all kinds of things like that. So you can kind of take some time to work through the text, make observations about what you're seeing. Also make notes. If there's passages that come to your mind while you're reading one verse, you might think, oh, this reminds me of this passage. Jot that down. Um, If you can't think of the location of the passage, Maybe just the idea of it. These are the kind of things we're talking about. We're just making as many observations about the text as possible. Obviously, if you understand or you've studied the book of Judges, you're going to have some observations a little bit different than those that haven't studied it because you kind of know the context in which it's working. Also, if you see the passage breaking up in a certain way. So you kind of feel like, okay, these verses go together, this verse goes together, these verses go, just bracket those out. So what we're doing is just kind of breaking the text up, we're making observations, and then what we're going to do is we're going to come back together and then talk about what does the verse actually mean? What does the passage mean? So this is kind of saying, what is the verse saying? What is, it, what is it communicating to us? And then we're going to work through the idea of what does it actually mean? And then the last step is application. So we want to take what we've learned of the meaning of the text, what we have observed in the text, and then apply that to our personal Christian lives. All right? So I'm going to give you about 10 minutes to go ahead and do that, and then we'll come back and talk it through. Give you guys a couple more minutes to finish up those thoughts. I see a lot of people looking at other people's paper. I don't know what's going on. we'll go ahead and start working through the passage. And uh, yeah, I definitely see a couple, I saw at least one husband kind of looking over, like talking, like, I probably was getting help on the text, but I won't name names or I won't call anyone out. Um, so, but no, we want to work through the text. And so um, something again, I'll let you know, is that we don't really, I, I don't have like, you know, x number of weeks that we're doing this it's really kind of always been just kind of week to week as the lord lays a passage on my heart and um, I pray these studies are encouraging to you. I pray they're beneficial to you, but most of all I pray that you see how practical it is to study the word of God. And if it helps you, print out the passage that you're going to study. Just just print it on a piece of paper, set it aside and then work through it that way. So often some of us we try to read it just in the scripture And if you're not a journaling type mindset, if you don't have a notebook right there, you may read it. And then these thoughts come to your mind. But if you're not kind of in the habit of journaling, you just kind of go about your day. So if it helps you to print it out and actually write in paper, it's always helped me to be able to visually kind of just write down things through the text. Um, So I pray that that's helpful to you. Before we jump into this, you're going to notice that we're in Judges 3. And we're in kind of the middle of early part of this chapter in verses 5 through 11. So when we find ourselves in a passage like that, we have to ask a couple questions. What is a really important question we have to ask when we find ourselves in Judges chapter 3? Okay, what went on in Judges 1 and 2, right? And so if you were doing this on your own and we, you had time to really dive into it, and for whatever reason, if you went home with this passage and we didn't break it down together, I would encourage you go read one and two and see where the story is. Now, just a quick review for those that weren't with us last week, because we really walked through a lot of Israel, like the history of the Israelites. Um, At this time in the nation of Israel, there is no king, right? There is no king over them. So God is their king at this point. And God has functioned through Moses and Joshua up to this point. So Moses was appointed as the deliverer. He led them out of Egypt. He brings them to the edge of the promised land. He was not allowed to take them into the promised land. Joshua takes them into the promised land. And if you want to know really what's going on in Judges, obviously read Joshua. It actually carries kind of consecutively through from Joshua to Judges in the history of uh, what's going on in Israel. And so Joshua's story is a lot about what? What do you read a lot about in the book of Joshua? What's that? War, tons of wars and battles and conquering and all these things. Because they've entered the promised land and there are people there. There are people groups already there. And those are the people groups listed in our text in verse 5. They're all considered Canaanites, but there's actually different tribes in the land. And so Joshua is told by God through Moses and reaffirmed himself that this is the promised land. This is for the nation of Israel. Go in and take it. And so Joshua begins to do that and he begins to move through the land and victory after victory after victory. And the people of God at times struggled and stumbled, but they're predominantly, they're really following Joshua's leadership. And there's multiple times, even in the book of Judges, it says that they followed Joshua's lead. Joshua famously says in the end of Joshua, right, choose this day whom you're going to serve. You can serve the true God or you can go serve these other gods, but you got to make a choice. And then once you make that choice, commit to that God. And so what do the people do? No, Joshua, we're with you. We're committing to serve the God of Israel, the God of our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They get into the land in the beginning of Judges. Nope. We're in agreement. They're not just saying, Joshua, we agree that you follow God and we're okay with that. They're saying, no, we want to follow God as a nation. Joshua passes away. And when this happens, and then those elders that were with Joshua that he was leading, it says when the people of God served God in the time of Joshua and then even in the time of the elders that outlived Joshua. But then after those elders begin to pass away, the children of Israel begin to drift and they start to look around at the people groups around them and their gods and one specific God that actually is named in our text and they begin to worship this God. They begin to give themselves over to this God. And now you find the people committing these sinful acts. They're falling into these sinful behaviors. There's no king over Israel. There's no human that's kind of appointed as ruler over the nation. It's them and God. And so God begins to appoint what are called judges. Now, I said this last week. When we think of a judge, we think of the robe, right? Sitting at a bench, making decisions, making uh, determinations about who's guilty and innocent or this or that thing. And they got the gavel and they bang it. And okay, decisions made. These judges were not simply those that were in charge of coming up with legal like determinations about right and wrong. They did do some of that. They did decide between matters, but they're also military leaders. They're Spiritual leaders—they're kind of all-in-one leader for the people to draw them back to God. And so these these judges are not kings; they're not really prophets, although they do communicate for God. They're a very unique calling, a very unique position that God instituted during this time. Now, following this time of judges, we're going to find the people begin to want what a king, and why do they want a king? Everybody else is a king. I want a king. That's not fair that they get kings and we don't get kings. And any of you that have raised toddlers or preschoolers, this is the same mindset. That's not fair. They have one. I want one. And it's the same problem we see in, in judges. Well, they have gods that let them do all those kind of things. They have gods that let them have all kinds of fun. And there's no rules and boundaries and all these restrictions. I want to be with those gods. And it's the same mindset through the whole Old Testament. It's the same mindset in the New Testament. And it's the exact same mindset in humanity today. We see the restrictions of God that what he puts around us as boundaries as a negative thing. But as we talked about last week, those boundaries brought joy, bring freedom, bring peace. It's the removal of those things that actually bring bondage. And so in our text, quickly... We see that they dwelt among these people groups, and you can really study into what they were supposed to do in dealing with these people groups, and they did not fully do that for, again, all the reasons we're not going to dive into. Verse 6, we see another sin being committed idol worship, but what was another sin that they committed? We talked about this last week. They intermarried, they took their daughters to be their wives and gave their daughters to be their sons. And I love the way that this is worded in the book of Judges. And serve their gods. Those two things, the intermarrying and the idol worship, are not two separate events. It's the natural byproduct. When these marriages were happening, and these families were joining together, it's just natural that these gods are going to be worshipped. And I'll give you an example that we would understand. I've talked to many people who get married. And maybe the, the husband grew up... Baptist. And the wife grew up Lutheran. And those are two Christian backgrounds. But when you join in marriage, guess what? Well, what kind of church are we going to raise our kids in? Because yes, they believe Jesus is the Savior. They believe in the basics of Christianity. But what church do we go to? Do we go to a Baptist church or a Lutheran church? And those can be two very different church experiences. So now husband and wife, we got to figure this out. There there could even be tension there. And so again, there's, this is not a weird thing that this happens. It's the natural overflow of it. And we mentioned last week, you can jot these uh, references down. So first we see that idolatry is forbidden in Deuteronomy 6, 14 through 15. You can just jot this anywhere around verse 6 on your paper there. Deuteronomy 6, 14 through 15 the intermarrying with those that are not followers of God forbidden in Deuteronomy seven and verse three. So Deuteronomy seven and verse three says, do not intermarry with those who are not followers of God. And Deuteronomy six, 14 through 15 says, do not worship idols. Now there's many other verses that say, do not worship idols. Those are just two examples from Deuteronomy. Yes, ma'am. Um, so, but even like the 10 commandments have been given at this point. Mm-hmm. Right. So I mean, even the first Right. Yes, have no other gods before me and so on and so forth. Yep, absolutely. So one thing we talked about last week, I want to make this clear again because I don't want to give the wrong impression here. Because some people have used these ideas of intermarrying in in our country in the 40s and in the 50s and even in the 60s to speak against interracial marriages. When somebody of African-American descent marries somebody who's Caucasian. And they use these kind of texts to validate why that should never happen. The problem is that's not what God's talking about here. What God's talking about here has nothing to do with race or by the way, there's only one race, right? The human race. We're all just different shades of the same basic colors, right? It's just different degrees of that shade, but we're all one human race. Biblically speaking, we're all of Adam. There are no races. So racism really can exist in the Christian mindset because we're all one. We're all the human race. But anyway, it's not a racial thing. It's a spiritual thing. The New Testament emphasizes intermarrying in a a way that should be guarded against. And and what is that guard? Don't marry somebody who's not a Christian if you're a Christian. It's the same basic principle. If you're a follower of God and you marry somebody who's not, guess what? That's going to lead to tension and fighting and bitterness and all kinds of issues. And a push and pull is going to start happening. Now, Sooner or later, someone's going to change their view on something. Now, what do most Christians think? Well, yeah, but I'll marry this person. And I'm not saying this is always how it is, but it seems like we're doing youth ministry and, and talking to couples for a few years now. It seems like to me, the way it usually goes is a Christian woman marries a non-Christian man with the assumption that I can help this person come to Christ. And that may happen. I'm not. Paul says, remain married because that may happen. You may be the Christ that they see and come to faith. So Paul says, no, you don't divorce that person. You remain married to them as long as they will stay married to you. But talking to teenagers, this happened, this conversation came up so often. You wouldn't believe it. But when teenagers are considering dating somebody, when we were doing youth ministry. Whenever a Christian girl dated a non-Christian guy in our high school youth ministry, it only took a few weeks before when the guy said, I don't want to go to church, but I want to come over and hang out at your house. And the family wasn't Christian. So she went, sure, come on over. We didn't see her in youth group anymore. This happened a few times. Now there are instances where one guy did date a non-Christian girl and she ended up pulling him away. So in the handful of experiences I can think of, even as adults that are married now have shared with me the stresses and the tensions that have come from this, very rarely will it actually lead to the spouse coming to Christ and coming to church. Usually what happens is Either the unsafe person will pull the saved person away from the Lord. I mean, not they're losing their salvation, but an octave walk. Or the, the Christian spouse has to say, I'm going to church anyway. I'll see you when I get home. Which I applaud that. That takes a lot of courage to do that, by the way. So that's usually how it goes. Now, we have heard, and praise God, even Julie has shared her experience with Randy coming to Christ after 30 years, 29, 30 years of being together. So obviously, God can save anyone at any time he chooses. But what we're saying is, what is God's ideal? That's what we're looking at. What is God saying? Like, if you do this, it will result in good, peace, joy, happiness. Great example of this in the Old Testament. Ahab married Jezebel. How'd that turn out? Not great. To the point where he built temples for her gods. And so again, this is why God said it's not a racial thing. It's not, well, this people group, shouldn't, that has nothing to do with it. And for the fact that it actually really angers me when I hear stories about preachers from the 50s and 60s misapplying and misusing scripture to encourage racism and prejudice and bigotry. That's it's ridiculous. And it angers me that that happened from pulpits all across this country. That's not what this text is saying. What it is saying is don't marry someone who doesn't serve the same God you do because it's going to cause problems. And it's going to lead you astray. And the result is they started forgetting that God was the one that brought them out of Egypt. God was the one that brought them into the promised land. And so here we see these things are happening. So what's the byproduct of this? They begin to worship the god Baal. So we see that in verses, verse 7. Children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and forgot the Lord their God, meaning they practically lived as though he didn't exist. They were We would call this today practical atheism. So it's a Christian who says they're saved but lives like they're an atheist. That means they they are saved but they're living like there is no God. That's what they were doing. It says it served their God, or forgot the Lord their God, and served Balaam and the groves. Now, you can underline Balaam, circle Balaam. That's just Baal worship, okay? That's just Baal worship. Balaam is the plural of Baal. In another passage in Judges, we read about Ashtaroth. I believe it's in chapter 2. We read that last week. Ashtaroth is the sister of Baal. And maybe his sister wife. I can't remember how that works. But I think Baal in their whole mythology had two sisters. One was a wife and one wasn't or something like that. But Baal continues to be an issue for the Israelites. All the way through to the New Testament. I mean this is Beelzebub in the New Testament. When they basically talk about this idea of Beelzebub. It's the same idol. Um, again, this is what they begin to do, and what's the results? They'd only serve Baal. It says, and the groves. You can underline groves because that's not. It's not just the location of where they worshipped Baal; it's where they practiced the worship of Baal. And there's so much wickedness involved in Baal worship because Baal was considered a, a fertility god, and so that involved various forms of wickedness that you can imagine that involved the idea of fertility. And so, this all went on by the people that claim to follow God. And God is watching all this, and God is seeing all of this, and He just brought them into the promised land. And He delivered them into this land. He was so good to them. And then, verse 8. When we read verse 8 in this context, we are not surprised. When we don't read verse 8 in this context, we are shocked. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was what? Against Israel. It was hot. That means to be scorched, to be burned. He's just enraged by the way they're behaving. And as we talked about this morning, what drove that rage? Was it because he hated them and wanted the worst for them and wanted to just punish them? No. What drove the rage and the anger was the love for them. Because as they're doing these things, he's seeing what that wickedness is doing to them. It's hurting them, it's damaging them, it's damaging their relationships, the potential of what the purpose of life really is. And all of that, along with it, marred the holiness of God. Now, the people of God aren't recognizing the holiness of God, they're worshiping self by practicing all this stuff. And so, it enraged God because it came against his holiness and it hurt his creation. And I believe. Those two things are kind of at a foundation of many, if not all, of the reasons God gets mad when we sin. It's not just God's mad at you because you broke his law and you weren't perfect and he's just mad to be mad. It's No, when we follow sin, we get hurt. When we choose to sin, we are hurt in that. It's not joyful. Now, what does the Bible say? It's joyful for a season until the consequences kick in. Until the result of our sin choice kicks in. And because God is a good and loving heavenly father and he wants the best for us, that's why it breaks his heart when his creation sins. The other side of that coin, which we can't say is completely separate, deals with our purpose for existence is to reflect and to glorify him in his holiness. And when we're not doing that, he's going to get wrathful and angry about that. Why? Because he defends his holiness. God will always defend his holiness among his people. This is why Jesus flipped tables in the temple because the people were misusing that space and robbing the people when they're coming to worship, right? Hurting the people. There's part of that equation. What's the other part of the equation? You've turned my father's house, which should be a house of what? Prayer into a den of thieves. So you're marring the holiness of God and you're hurting his people, misleading them. Why do you get so mad at the Pharisees? Because you're leading my people away from me. You're leading them away from a relationship with me. So it's always interconnected. And again, I I believe God does everything he does for multiple reasons. Because God is God. Why did God send the Israelites in to wipe, basically wipe out these people groups? Because he just hated these other people? No, I believe he was using Israel to judge these people groups. Just like he used Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon to judge his people. And so God is not just this vindictive, angry God that's just looking for ways to wipe people out. Sometimes we feel like we read the Old Testament and we're like, man, that sounds really harsh. i got to clean this up for my unsaved friends. Like, i got to make this better for them because that sounds like a pretty angry God. But if we don't understand the purpose is to defend his holiness among his people and to actually be a blessing to his creation that they might experience the fullness of what it is to be in him and for us in Christ, then we will think these things are harsh. All right, so moving into that, we see the next thing that comes is oppression says in verse 8 that they were oppressed or taken captive. This oppression is not slavery in the sense that they were taken into their homes and chained. It means that they were still able to live in their homes and function in their, in their communities, but they had no freedom. So they had to pay tribute, pay taxes to them. They could take their property if they wanted to. They had no private property, no possession, no freedom in a sense. They couldn't do what they want. Their food could be taken. Their possessions, again, could be taken. Um, they could use their homes for whatever they want. We're just going to house our citizens here, or our troops here, and they had no say over it. So it's really not like you're chained up, but you're basically chained up. You're constrained to these people. And the Bible says in verse 8 that this happened for eight years. They were in bondage. Now, verse 9. We're going to read verse 9, and then we're going to read the rest of it in just a moment. But verse 9, the the courage to call in repentance. So by verse 9 somewhere, you need to write that down. The courage... To call out in repentance. Maybe even just the courage. To call out. Because that's why I love. How verse 9 starts. The courage. To call out. In repentance. Verse 9. And when. The children of Israel. Cried. Unto the Lord. The Lord raised up a deliverer. To the children of Israel. Who delivered them. Even. uh, Othniel. The son of. uh, Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. Now, Caleb's name registers real quick, right? So we'll talk about him in just a moment when we get into more about Othniel. But the first thing we need to note is that these people, the Israelites, they cried unto the Lord in repentance, realizing one vital fact. They could not deliver themselves. For eight years, they're in bondage, and the reality is becoming more and more clear. We can't get ourselves out of this. And I love that they chose to cry out. I love that it says when the children of Israel cried unto the Lord. This, this tells me if it was a year in, six months in, two weeks in, if they would have cried out in repentance and said, Lord, we're so sorry. We repent. We turn from these things. We, we repent. We turn back to you. Would you deliver us? I believe God would have delivered them. God's not in heaven going, nope, it's only been six years. No, the point of oppression was to bring what to the people? Repentance. He wanted them to repent. He desired their repentance. And I love that he, when they cried out, he did what he could have done all along. And he's ready to do it. But he's giving them that up. I want you to repent because I want you to learn this lesson. Now, if we read the book of Judges... We are struck with two very powerful things about human nature and God's character. One, humans are really dumb. We're not bright. We're just, we're just dumb. There was a video that went around a while ago on Facebook. I've seen a few people share it where this sheep is stuck in a crevice of a rock. Yeah. And the guy pulls the sheep out and the sheep hops away all joyfully until it what? Goes right back into the crevice of the rock. That's us. We're not smart. So what do the Israelites do in the book of Judges? They sin. They're oppressed. They repent. They're delivered. And then they sin. And they're oppressed. And then they repent. And then they're delivered. So we see the foolishness of man. But also what comes to mind is about God's character is the amazing grace and patience of God. For God to continually show grace to these people, to show forgiveness, to show mercy and patience, it blows me away that He would endure with such a people. And that's not really shocking, though, because you know you. And you know how many times God has delivered you from the oppression that you put yourself in as a consequence of the sins that you chose, and yet He still is patient to forgive you. Now, do we sin that grace may abound? God forbid. But when we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. That's the patience of God. That's the enduring nature of God. Now, we know the Bible says there will come a point where he will cease to, to be that, to do that. Not because he ran out of patience. It's because he chose by his doing, we're done now. This is it. But praise God for time to repent of repentance. Praise God that he gives us opportunity to repent. You realize that the moment we sin, the moment we sin, he has every right to just wipe us out. Because we broke his law. That's rightful punishment. But he doesn't do that. He didn't do that in Genesis 3. He's patient. You say, oh yeah, but what about Noah's ark? I mean, he wiped out the world with a flood. Yeah, after 120 years of Noah preaching repentance. Repentance. Before Jesus came, John the Baptist came. What was John's message? Repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. He actually says it this way. There's an ax at the root of the tree, and the tree, it's almost fallen over. That's the image that John pictures for the coming of Christ. Listen, all of you that are just mocking God and thinking God doesn't care, the tree almost on the ground. It's, it's coming. The judgment is coming. And so it's always been this message of repentance. And so verse 9 or verse, yeah, verse nine. We see they cried out to the Lord, and as a result, what did God do? He raised up a deliverer. He raised up somebody who would deliver them. A, a verse or a passage that I jotted down uh, right there. I, I circled the word "when" in verse nine, and as I circled that, I, I put out to the side Luke fifteen seventeen. Luke fifteen seventeen. Now, Luke fifteen really quick comes to our memory. Does anyone know, just off the top of your head? What Luke 15 is dealing with? Luke 15. Very famous parable. What's it? Okay, it's the prodigal son, yes? The whole parable is actually just the, what's been lost has been found, right? The lost coin, the lost sheep, and the lost son. So, yes, 1517 says this. He came to himself. Remember when he was in the pig pen? It says he came to himself and he realized, man, my father's servants have bread enough to eat. And I'm eating this. I'm living in filth. I live with pigs. He says, this is what I'll do. I'll go home and I'll repent. I'll, I'll apologize. By the way, the minute he came to himself and realized what he had done and admits it to himself and God, he repented in that moment repentance wasn't when he finally got to his father and gave his little speech. No, no, no. Repentance came when he was in the pig pen and just realized, God, this is wrong. This is foolish. I turned from this. Notice how when he got to the father, did he get into his little speech before his father grabbed him up and kissed him on the neck? Just grabbed him. You know why? Because the image of the son coming over the hill was evidence of repentance. He's come home. He's repented. Now, the son still says what he needs to say. He still apologizes and goes through all of that. But notice, he comes home thinking, I'll be a servant. But he comes home to be welcomed home and celebrated as a son. And I I love that picture of salvation because I think when we get to heaven, well, scripture says, most likely we'll fall on our face in just sheer adoration of who God is. And I think we're going to go to heaven feeling like, man, just let me be a servant. Let me just get in the door and be a servant. I'll do whatever you want. And I think we're going to be celebrated in the son. As one who now you're my son through Christ, my son. No, enter into the joy of the Lord. Like great is your reward. And we're going to be overwhelmed by that because listen, five seconds ago, I was in the pig pen and I was filthy and I was unclean and I didn't do anything I should have done. And I come to you and I say, hey, I'm really, and you're just forgiving me. And we're welcomed in as a son, not a servant. Now we know we serve him, but what does Jesus say? I don't call you servants, I call you friends. So again, a position changes. In that moment of clarity, the prodigal son repented and came home. And I love that in verse 9, it says, and when the children of Israel. That moment of clarity, it was in that moment. As the prodigal son decided to return home and confess to his father, the children of Israel had the same type of moment of realization that they must call out to the Lord. Now, here's the also kind of amazing thing. They knew they could cry out to the Lord, and he would hear them. Isn't that amazing? Eight years you've been living in oppression. Before that, you were worshiping Baal, denying God, forgetting God, forgetting about what he did for you. And in that moment of clarity, they believed we can call out to him. He'll hear us. What does that tell us about their view of God? What does that tell us about their view and understanding of who God is? What do you think? What does that tell us about their view of God if they knew they could call out to Him in that moment and He would hear them? Okay? Okay? That He's living and active? Okay? Okay, so they're remembering what he's done in the past. So do you see the repentance has brought a changing of one of the sin issues? What does it say in um, verse seven? Forgot the Lord, their God. They're remembering who he really is. Okay, he's living and active. He's forgiven us before he's delivered. He'll do it again. Anything else that that reveals to us about their view of God, who God is to them? Yeah, he actually does have the power to deliver them, no matter the force of the enemy they're coming up against, right? That's not even brought into the equation. Well, we think God could overcome these guys. No, they know God can do this. Any other thoughts on that? Yeah, David. Okay. They know what they need to do to fix it, so they know what they've been doing has been wrong. That also means that they're realizing we could have done this a while ago, right? They they knew the solution the whole time, but why would they not then? Kind of brings a different question to mind. Why would they not then do they did this for eight years, they were impression, why not seven and a half years prior if they knew that was the answer? Why not why not do it then? Sandra. <laughs> I yeah. Wrong, again, I what I, I don't want to do I do what I do want to do I don't do Romans 7 right yeah it's that knowledge of what should be going on but the application of that right yeah that's and he says at the end of that why is that because there's sin in me right there's a sin nature in me that's warring against the flesh absolutely any other thoughts about that Julie okay Hmm. So their lives are going to have to okay. If there's children involved. Yep. Yep. So they may be debating for a while. I know what I need to do, but man, that's going to mean losing somebody I love potentially, or some family situation is going to change. Yeah. That's a great point. Yeah. Right. Yep. Yep. Any other thoughts on that? Okay? they're they're putting into practice what we read in Hebrews, right that he is the same God yesterday, today, and forever, so if he they were with him before, he'll be with them now, right so they're remembering his character, his steadfastness, right who he really is absolutely okay. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. absolutely. And, And we actually dove into that a little bit last week that so many people think if I just live free, no restrictions, no whatever, I'll actually be enjoying life to a greater degree. But the same thing happens in our lives today. When we live that way, we actually are inviting oppression and bondage into our lives. It's only when we're living within, and I'll use the word confines in a very positive sense, of God's commands, God's leading, God's boundaries, whatever word you want to use, that we actually find true freedom. Because when you talk to somebody who goes out into the world and just lives sinful and crazy and wicked and fun and party and, oh man, this is great. And then you find out they're battling addictions and all other kinds of oppressions and bondages that now they're trying to get out of. And so again, I actually kind of think eight years. Yeah. We're in oppression. Like we don't have a lot of our own stuff. We have to pay taxes and do all these things, but they're still worshiping Baal. They're still engaging in all these fun activities so maybe they didn't cry out when they knew they needed to because, well, we're having fun. Like, this is enjoyable. And in reality, there comes a point where they realize, okay, this isn't fun anymore. And, and now, and again, remember, this is speaking nationally in a sense. So I don't, I don't think there were every individual was doing this. I think there were many individuals that were probably still trying to follow God, rejecting Baal worship. We see all through God's word a remnant that's always remained right? Those, that group of people that have said, no, we're going to not do that. We're going to abstain from that. So I do believe there's individuals that have been doing the right thing, you know, fighting for the right things. But as a whole, the nation is living this way. And I agree. I think this is a great picture of what we're battling with today or seeing in our culture today, a hundred percent. So here we see, moving on, uh, they call out to him. Um, they had no doubt that he would hear them. Uh, I think I would have doubted, if I'm being honest, I would have wondered if God would still Forgive and and deliver after all that had been done. And yet God is always ready and willing to forgive those who call on his name. What a principle. Uh, This is not a New Testament characteristic of God. We think it is because Romans wrote and obviously all of that. But this idea that if somebody will call out and repent, God's character, his nature, is he will forgive. And we see this in King Saul's life and in King David's life. King Saul did not repent and it cost him dearly. King David committed some pretty wicked acts, but yet the difference between those two kings, one wasn't better than the other. Both sinned, both broke God's law, both did things they shouldn't. And you could actually argue some of the things David did probably a little worse than what Saul did. But what did God do when David repented? He forgave him. Saul never repented, therefore he was Oppressed and dealt with his consequences. And so again, you see this is the nature of God. This is not a New Testament thing. Well, Jesus came and saved us from the mean Old Testament God. He was really mean and Jesus is really nice and loving. And so he rescues us from that bad, evil God of the Old Testament. That is not at all what it is. Again, it's always been in the character of God. Genesis 3 reminds us of this. God could have eliminated Adam and Eve. And yet he provides for them a sacrificial way of having a relationship with him. Who wants to be with these two sinners who completely disregarded your word? And yet he says, let me clothe you. Let me show you how to sacrifice so we can continue to have a relationship. Now, is it the same as it was? No. But the fact that God would even want a relationship with humanity at that point, that speaks volumes of his character, his patience, and his grace. So, last couple of verses, and then we'll wrap up. They go to 7.15, so I got you for an extra 14 minutes. We're not going to go all the way to 7.15, though. At least that's not my goal every Sunday night, so don't get scared. So, uh, verses 9 through 11, you can also kind of, if you're breaking up the text, um, and I think I did this last week, um, so, I, I'm so I apologize for not doing that now. So, uh, verses 5 through 7, we see the sin. Remember, there's that cycle we see of consistent things happening. So, we see the sin. Verse 8, we see the judgment of that sin. In verses 9 through 11, we see the deliverance from that sin. So here in 9 through 11, we see the call of the first judge. So this is the first judge that's called to lead the people. As I said last week too, as you go through the book of Judges, it's kind of interesting how, I don't want to say this, I I use the word quality, it's probably a better word. The quality of the judge starts to diminish as time goes on. We and we see this kind of breaking down, right, of these. I look at the ballot and I go, this is, this is the best, right? This is, this is the best that we got to offer, really? Because I'm not digging any of these people. Because, again, we can see in our culture breaks down so our candidates will begin to lessen as far as the quality and the characteristics and all those things. So that's, that sort of happens in the book of Judges as well. Even one case where a man was fearful to step up and do what he had to do and God brought someone else along to do that. So again, you can see that happen in Judges, and we see it in our own kind of world today. So Othniel is raised up by God to be the deliverer. You can jot this down somewhere there. Uh, He's actually first mentioned in chapter 1, verses 12 through 13 of Judges. Um, He's actually referred to uh, Caleb offers um, his daughter's hand to the one who conquered those fighting against Israel. So we see a connection here already. Uh, Othniel may have been, this is where culture and all of that begins to play a little bit into this. Um, Othniel may have been the nephew of Caleb, which it does say in our text here. Um, It says younger brother. Um, So again, it depends on how people interpret this uh, from translating it from the Hebrew. Some people think it means that he was his younger brother which again makes it awkward that he's giving his daughter's hand to him in marriage. Um, But again, we see things like this in that culture uh, in Old Testament. And again, just because the Bible records something doesn't mean the Bible endorses something, okay? However, there's some other ways to look at this and studying this out in different commentaries that some people have taken the original Hebrew here and that idea of brother or relative uh, may be better translated differently. So some translate this as... um, Not so much a brother or a nephew, but a relative. So just a distant relative, which could also mean then they're just referring to the fact that Othniel was from Judah, the tribe of Judah, and Caleb was from the tribe of Judah. So it could even be referring to just their tribal background as far as both being from the tribe of Judah. Also, Othniel is the only judge that is connected to the tribe of Judah among all the judges that are mentioned. Um, So again, I find it interesting that he's the first one from the tribe of Judah. Which obviously connects to the bigger picture of the tribe of Judah in relation to um, Christ. And so here we see uh, Caleb. We know Caleb. Who's, who's Caleb? What's Caleb popular for? Caleb and Joshua were popular for this. Yeah, they're the two spies. They went into the land. What did the other ten spies say? Can't be done. There's giants in the land. Are you kidding me? We can't do this. What is Joshua and Caleb's response? Why are we hesitating? Let's go. <laughs> Like, this isn't even a question. So again, we see Caleb as being somebody of importance in the book of Joshua. Um, It's interesting how he is rewarded. You can go back and read about when Joshua was distributing all the land to the tribes, how Caleb is rewarded, um, being, I believe, the first one rewarded uh, for his involvement in all of this. Um, So again, there's some connection here to Caleb being a great man of God. Othniel is considered a great man of God. Um, uh, His name actually means lion of God. So his name means Lion of God. Uh, He seemed to be a man of great strength. And by his first mention, he already was ready to defend and fight for his people. So in chapter 1, we already see that he was a man ready to fight, ready to defend his people and his God. Again, a great description of a man of God, right? Ready and willing to do whatever was needed. John. Yes. Yes. Um, also it's said here, let's look at verse 10 and I'm going to tell you now, I'm not going to read the name of the King. So I'll let you just have fun with however you want to pronounce that in your head. Um, but I'm not even going to try. There's, I mean, you should never be able to put that many letters in a word. That's just wrong. Okay. Verse 10 and the spirit of the Lord came upon him and he judged Israel. Now, remember the judge's job is not just to deliver Israel, but also to judge Israel, to bring judgment against them, Uh, and went out to war, and the Lord delivered that king of Mesopotamia into his hand, and his hand prevailed against that king. Verse 11, and the land had rest 40 years, and Othniel, the son of Canaz, died. So eight years in captivity and, and oppression, 40 years of peace and rest. Um, It said there in the passage, the spirit is said to have come upon him, granting him the power and authority to judge according to God's leading. Um, Again, you can jot this down here. Um, This in that beginning of verse 10, and the spirit of the Lord came upon him. This is a Old Testament ministry of the Holy Spirit. So this is throughout the Old Testament. Um, Does anyone know the three positions that primarily receive the filling or the gifting of the spirit for their role that they're given? Prophet is one, yep. Priest and king. So here we could also say judge, right? Um, yes. I do think it's confusing though, like to my knowledge, what I've always heard is that the first time the spirit was given was when they went to make the tent and the spirit yes. was poured on the artisans. Mm-hmm. Which I think yep. Is like, so like a different picture of God, the our creator God, yep. right? Yep. And Yep. So, and that's kind of the idea. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit was given for a purpose. Okay? Also, the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament could be taken away from someone. Um, This happened to Samson. When his strength left him, it doesn't mean he got physically weak. It means the Spirit was leaving him and left him. What's super sad about Samson, though, in that whole story, first of all, Samson, how bright do you got to be? She's asked you how many times, and every time you tell her, it just keeps happening. Like, figure out. She's the one doing it. Anyway, um... So it says the spirit left him or the strength left him, but it says he got up to go out and do this thing that he's done all before, but he didn't even know that his strength left him. He was so indifferent to the things of God that he got to a point where the spirit left and he couldn't tell the difference. Like that's terrifying. What does David cry out in Psalms? Take not thy spirit from me. This is why there are certain things we not only do not have to pray, we should not pray. No Christian has to pray, Lord, take not thy spirit from me. Because he tells us he won't. In the New Testament. What does Ephesians 1 say? You are sealed with the Spirit. Until the day of redemption. There's no evidence in the New Testament. Where Jesus takes the Spirit. Every time you read about the Spirit being given. In a a sense of for a purpose or a task. Before the full indwelling of the Spirit. Which begins with the church in Acts 2. It's under Old Testament. And it was given for a purpose. Again primarily prophet, priest and king. Here judges and also those that were instructed. To build the tabernacle. Now, again, those men had talents, but God equipped them even greater. So, again, why is that so important to note? Because notice how that precedes the war that went on and the deliverance. This means Zechariah six. You can jot it down, Zechariah 4.6. Not by might or by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. It has always been by the power of God, the deliverance that he does through individuals, and it continues to be so. This again draws all attention back to the Lord. The Lord rescued the children of Israel and gave them rest for 40 years. Does that mean for 40 years they were perfect? Never sinned? Of course not. What does it mean? That as a national view, they consistently kept their eyes on the Lord. They followed him. They ceased worshiping idols. They wanted to please him. And again, though, Othniel is going to pass away. And when that happens, what do the children of Israel begin to drift and do? Right back into those things. Abi. So I'd have to go back and Okay, so 40 is referring to, usually it's referring to a time of of trial or testing, 40 days, or Jesus was in the wilderness for 40 days, you know, all that. Um, But this right here, I would say this is just referring to the idea of of, a round number of just, there was testing and trial that led to rest is kind of what's looked at here. So I don't see this 40 representing the 40 of testing and trial because they're not being tested and tried, they're a time of peace. But also some have suggested that it wasn't specifically exactly 40 years, that they may have, the author may have rounded it to 40. It might have been 38 or 39, something like that. But usually, my understanding, 40 in Scripture usually, and this is going to be careful, just because a number means something in a lot of places doesn't mean it in every place. Um, usually, I think it refers to a time of testing or trial. But that's a great question. I'll go back and look at that just a little bit closer and make sure I'm, I'm accurate in that description. Um, so Othniel served as a judge, not merely as a deliverer, but again, both in spiritual and civil leadership, guiding and directing under the desire of the Lord. Now, the interesting thing, the word rest here means to be quiet, to be at peace and to be undisturbed. So they were quiet and at peace to be undisturbed. And I like that last part of that definition to be undisturbed. There was nothing disturbing their presence or their relationship with God and his presence in their lives. They were focused on him. Peace and joy are the natural byproducts of repentance and continued remembrance of the Lord and his will for our lives. Just like oppression and bondage are the natural byproducts of sin, so peace and joy are the natural byproducts of when we repent and continually remember who God is. So the more we strive to remember him and his goodness to us, the result will be peace and joy. But when we give ourselves over to sin, the result will be oppression and bondage. Now, we might be putting ourselves in oppression to ourselves, which we think, again, brings great freedom, but it really doesn't. It just brings trials and stress and all kinds of things. And this doesn't mean that when we walk with him and remember him, that everything's going to be perfect either because we live in a fallen world. But we also make decisions and work with people, live in a country where people make different decisions that we're affected by. But that's why I love this. I think the peace that's being talked about in the New Testament is not this peace that everything's perfect around us. I think it's saying, no, we're in the midst of the storm and we still have this joy and this rest because our relationship with God is undisturbed because it's kept in him, right? Right? All right, let's do this, because I just, it's 7.14. I have to finish before 7.15. No, I'm just kidding, because Renee's going to be like, you didn't send them down. Um, All right, let's pray, and then we'll let you guys be dismissed. Father, we thank you for tonight. And Lord, thank you for your word, which is always such an amazing light unto our path. It directs us and guides us from examples that we can read about from years ago. So I pray that we would apply these things to our hearts and minds, that we realize that when we keep our eyes on you, Lord, the result is joy and peace. When we take our eyes off of you. We put our eyes on sin and self. The result will be some form of bondage. Lord, not joy, but sorrow, not peace, but stress. And so, Lord, help us to learn these things well, to be what we have been called to be in Christ, servants who are faithful to you, sons and daughters who desire to know you more, thankful for your patience and your endurance. And, Father, in all these things, we'll give you all the praise. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, thank you guys so much for coming out tonight. Don't forget, Wednesday, 645. Come on back and uh, have a great week.